I'm Russ McQuaid, and this is Indie Justice. Karen Joe disappeared days after Christmas 2000. So did Stephen for two weeks. So did his car. No way on earth that, that Karen Joe Smith would have left those two kids there. I thought he was a decent guy. I'll be honest with you. We didn't have any kind of crime scene, Russ. I think we all knew that at some point we were going to we were going to be here. I knew that once he got her alone, he would kill her. He had promised. There's going to be two things that's going to happen. We're going to bring Steve Halpin to justice. We're going to find her daughter, Karen. This episode of Indie Justice contains strong language. When Karen Jo Smith disappeared a couple days after Christmas in the year 2000, it was bone-chilling cold. Nighttime lows of five degrees below zero. Central and Southern Indiana were encased in snow and ice. And her ex-con, ex-husband, Stephen Holcomb, disappeared too. It didn't take long for Karen Joe's family to connect the dots and convince Marion County Grand Jury Prosecutor Ellen Corcella that Holcomb had killed the mother of his daughter. And the question is, did he uh, cause her to disappear and did he kill her? We had to disprove other theories of why she is missing. Like, did she intentionally go missing? Uh, did she commit suicide somewhere? And, uh, and we got to the point where then the question was, do we have enough of a case to believe that she killed it, so that he killed her? That Steve Holcomb wanted Karen Jo Smith dead there was no doubt. Holcomb tried to hire a hitman to kill her during a custody dispute over their daughter Stephanie just before he went to prison on a cocaine charge in the mid-90s. Holcomb sent Karen Joe letters from prison telling her he knew that she had turned him in, even though she didn't. After he got out, Holcomb told Karen Joe over breakfast one day that he learned in prison how to dispose of her body so that no one would ever see her again. Prosecutor Ellen Corcella knew she would have to fight a battle on two fronts when she entered that courtroom against Stephen Holcomb. Not only that he had killed Karen Joe, but also that she didn't take off or do this to herself. In the course of this, I learned that she had tried to commit suicide several months before she went missing. Was he a factor in her previous attempt to commit suicide? I think so, yes. Because it was after he'd returned to the home, I think she felt she had no way to escape him and uh, took the pill, I think it was pills, as a way to either, you know, sometimes it's to wake up the person who's, who's really doing you harm or feeling like she just had no way out. But I think she came back to terms of the fact that she needed to be there for her children. She was in the hospital, but again, Steve Halcombe would never leave her side and kept calling her and calling her and calling her, even for a few days when he didn't know where she was. So we use that to compare it to this time when she goes missing. 
he's not trying to call her. He just never calls her again, right? So sometimes things that look like they'd be holes in our case mm -hmm. actually were, were good contrast to what was happening in the final situation. It's during Christmas of 2000 that Karen Joe has finally had enough. She tells Holcomb, he's got to go. But she makes a final fatal miscalculation that Corcella says is common for victims of domestic abuse. She didn't kick him out of the house, though. And what you, we learned or know, because I also studied sort of this, what happens in abusive relationships, and is that if you tell the abuser to leave, you net we. If you go to Damien Center, any place now, and talk about you have to make them leave that day because the opportunity and the desire to wreak violence on that person mm -hmm. will increase in those days after you ask them to leave. Um, and so uh, what she did instead was look for apartments for him and things like that. And that couple extra days is all the time Steve Holcomb needed to give in to his murderous impulses, the grievances and hatred that had been brewing up for years. Karen Joe was gone without a trace. And now Deputy Prosecutor Ellen Corcella and IPD Detective Judy Phillips and Karen Joe's family needed to convince a jury that Steve Holcomb had done her in. So finally, at some point, this ends up going to trial, right? Yeah. Did you testify? Yeah. <clears throat> Now, I imagine you had to go, what, before the grand jury and then testify in open court? Yep. What was that like? That night, Brandon Smith was 12 years old and the last person to ever see his mother alive. Even though it took almost four years before he would tell his story to the court, Brandon remembered what it was like to be a troubled kid racked with guilt when he was questioned before the grand jury in 2004. I was always scared. By that time, I was in trouble. You know, taking me from juvenile to there to talk to people, it just sucked, you know? What were you getting in trouble for? Oh, stealing marijuana. That was really it, drinking. So you ended up testifying in court. Were you able to tell your story? Yeah, I told him. Brandon tells the jury what he remembers of the last night of his mother's life, of walking into the kitchen of the house on Whitehorse Street to find Holcomb hovering over her, threatening Karen Joe, and the boy picking up a baseball bat put a stop to the terror and Holcomb's chilling last words shaking his finger at that boy saying this is bullshit Brandon who was 16 years old when he testified in court and on a pass from juvenile detention told jurors about the moment Steve Holcomb likely made up his mind to kill Karen Joe Smith detective Phillips and deputy prosecutor Corcella were still searching for anyone else who could help fill in the blanks about Karen Joe's murder and disappearance. We, we did call an inmate from jail, um, and uh, he said he had contacted detectives. This was, I think, before I got on the case to say that, but probably in the time you all reporting are missing. 
and Halcombe was sitting in jail that he had confessed to him that he had done something with the body. Uh, we did call him and then uh, there was sort of a, uh, uh, a mini explosion in the trial and this is an interesting turn of events but the Legal Aid Society that was representing Halcombe came in to declare that their own lawyer was ineffectively representing Halcombe and claimed that um, their own lawyer should have uh, called an expert to testify to Karen's state of mind and that it was highly probable based on her state of mind that um, she committed suicide. Did you know about this part? No, I was not aware of this. Yeah. It's midway through the trial, and now prosecutor Ellen Corcella finds herself as a witness to a family fight about strategy going on over at Holcomb's side of the courtroom. And the dysfunctional defense team needs the judge, Jane Magnus Stinson, to referee. And the judge brings us all back to Chambers. And in Chambers, she's looking at them like, what are you doing, you know? Well, what happens is they see this is going far better than they ever predicted, right? Because they're like, the body's missing. There's no way that uh, uh, she can win this trial or prove that he's guilty. The defense wants to put on an expert to testify about Karen Joe's mental state just before she goes missing. The judge says, okay, but gives Corcella a day or two to prepare for the defense team's Hail Mary pass. It, it doesn't work for them very well because now I get to test his theory. So I said, um, when you decided or come to the conclusion that based on her prior suicide attempt uh, that she likely left, I said, um, how did she leave the house? And he kind of says, I don't know. I said, did you know that on the day she went missing, it was like minus 14 degrees? And he's like, well, no. I said, did you know the day she went missing, she also has, um, she had kind of a bum leg. So in order to even walk to the bus stop, she would have had to, and I kind of mimic, she would have, she shuffled that leg. So you're, you're saying to the jury that it's your expert opinion that on this day and below freezing temperature without her wallet and the leg that causes her great discomfort, she somehow found a bus to go to and found her way out of the city to kill herself. And that was the end of the suicide defense. In the courtroom fight for his life, Stephen Holcomb is running out of options. Ellen Corcella has told the jury about his obsessive behavior that stops the day Karen Joe vanishes, the threatening letters he wrote from prison, his disappearance for two weeks, and his always messy car that is whistle clean when he comes back. Corcella tells jurors about Holcomb's jailhouse buddy who says he confessed to disposing of the body and about Holcomb's Karen Joe suicide or voluntary disappearance theories that frankly make no sense. Karen Joe's stepmother, Patty Carter Bishop, would watch Holcomb time and time again get to his feet and she would remember how agitated he would get in the courtroom. He would jump up and say, Judge, I need to do this and I think that he was trying to play his own attorney. And at that time, he had the number two public defenders in, the, in Marion County. And she kept saying, sit down, Mr. Halcombe, you will not win an appeal in this courtroom. He kept trying to interject into that, and she had to keep repeating that to him. 
All that would seem left for a suspected killer who loves to talk and outsmart everyone around him is to take the stand in his own defense. Here's Ellen Corcella. He couldn't go on the stand because of his prior convictions. I mean, I think there was some time when they did think about it, put it on the stand, but um, I also think that they made the best defense decision not to put him on the stand. It, it, and that's, that's always the best decision, is to not yeah. put them on the stand. So when you make this pitch, how do you make your pitch in your closing argument? Right, I think we use, I use the, um, if someone comes in with an umbrella and shaking it, you don't even have to have windows in the courtroom to know it's raining outside, right? Um, the interesting thing about circumstantial evidence cases, because everybody goes, oh, it's a circumstantial evidence case. People like to figure it out for themselves. But you hand them a circumstantial evidence case and encourage them to figure it out for themselves. They like that. So they kind of get to go back and play detective. And you leave them that room for them to have the insight themselves. And if they get that insight themselves, they will come back with a conviction because it allows them to be intelligent, um, to use their own understanding of everyday life. I think that's the key. They understand, jurors understand how life works every day, right? And if you've appealed to that, they get it. And there's the sympathy for the missing and um, it didn't take very long for them to return a conviction. Karen Joe's stepmom thinks Holcomb tried to play the jury during the trial. All right, so the jurors come back, and uh, did you get a vibe off the jurors when they came back, or when the verdict was announced, what was your response? I had only picked two jurors, and that was the young jurors, to watch. And when Steve Holcomb winked and flirted with one of them, and I watched her say, oh my God, I thought I had a feeling. You never have a feeling on a jury. You cannot feel the jury. But I thought at that moment, okay, I got two of them, but you gotta have 12. So until that jury came back in with the verdict an hour and 20 minutes later, then we heard it. Prosecutor Ellen Corcella. There was so much to look at. It was an eight-day trial. Them coming back that fast actually made me a little nervous because I thought, oh, that wasn't long enough to look at everything, right? Because they got their coffee and they settle in with the exhibits. And I became, I was actually nervous that they had just said, nope, nobody, we're out of here, right? So um, it worked. It, it, these kind of cases, they work a little different than your yeah. usual cases. But I think when the jury walks in, and I'm sure you know this, if they are not looking at the defendant, you're pretty sure there's a conviction. And I don't think they looked at Steve Halcombe at all. No, the jury would not look at Steve Halcombe when it entered the courtroom. After nearly four years of mystery and planning and scheming and winking at the jury, Steve Holcomb was convicted for the murder of Karen Jo Smith. This is how we broke that story that night on Fox 59 News. Smith's family hugged after a Marion County jury returned a guilty verdict. The best Christmas present that anybody could ever want. Yeah. To know that he's never going to walk out from behind them bars again. Outside the courtroom that night, we talked to Karen Jo's father, Ed Bishop, and her son, Brandon Smith. You're guilty. You've been proven guilty. Now come forward and tell us where she's at. I feel her kissing me and hugging me. 
telling me that I was the greatest. A few weeks later, Steve Holcomb was sentenced to 95 years in prison. His earliest possible release date is 2052, and that's only if he doesn't get into trouble behind bars. He would be 87 years old. Holcomb now has nothing but time to serve on his hands, but he still holds one last secret, one last hole card he can play. Where did he dump Karen Joe's body? Karen Joe's dad and stepmom take a shot to see if Steve Holcomb wants to talk. Who decides, you know what, as much as of a dog this guy is, we've got to establish a relationship with him because there's still more information he has to give up. Ed and I decided that when we were writing Christmas cards one year. What'd you do? Better Steve Holcomb a Christmas card. And said, hope you're having a Merry Christmas. And that in turn started a conversation with Ed and Steve Falcom. And Steve sure does love to talk, right? Karen Joe's uncle, Jack Lee, remembered one time when Holcomb passed by him in the hallway outside of court during the trial. The family members there were talking to Ellen, I believe it was. Yeah, we were talking to Ellen, and they had brought Steve out to take him back to prison or take him back to jail, his holding cell. And my first instinct was to reach out and grab him by the neck, you know. That's my first thought. But then I thought, that's what he wanted me to do. So instead of grabbing Steve Holcomb by the throat, Jack Lee came up with another approach. So I, I decided to write Steve a letter. And I basically asked him, I said, you know, why put your parents through this? You know, won't you just tell us where Karen's at so we can go, go find her, you know? And uh, that was the letter that I wrote to him. And then he responded to that. Is that what that letter is there? This is the letter. And it starts out, Jack Lee, despite what, you're, what you might think, I'm not sitting here thinking about I'm hurting anybody, especially my mom, my mom and dad. I wish I could help you with finding Karen. But contrary to the popular belief, I don't know where she is. I should have taken the stand. Hindsight's 2020. Sorry I couldn't help you, and good luck, good luck with your future endeavors. Yours truly, Steve Halcom. It doesn't appear in there that he expresses any concerns or thoughts about Karen Joe, does it? No, does not. It's early 2005. Steve Holcomb is sitting at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility a couple hours away from his family in western Indiana and 47 years away from his earliest possible release date. By now, Karen Joe's father is visiting Holcomb in prison, searching for answers he never received. Ed Bishop died in 2018, leaving Patty to recall those conversations. Were you surprised when he responded? Not really, because he likes to talk. And he was in isolated segregation at the time. What does Ed describe to you about the conversations he's having with Stephen Holcomb at Wabash? Very, very good. He was giving information that Steve did not realize he was giving Ed. And all this happened because Steve wanted moved back to Pendleton. 
And the only way that was going to happen was if he gave up where he buried Karen Joe. What was Ed being able to kind of squeeze out of him that Stephen didn't know he was giving up? After about the fourth or fifth visit, Steve Halcom admitted everything he did. He drew somewhat of a map of where she was, and we had to go on with that map. And he developed a rapport to where he trusted Ed would get him moved. Does he describe to Ed what happens that last night? Yes, he did. What did he say? Strangled her, dragged her out the side door, put her in the car, drove as far south. He kept trying to stop and dig and see more. Every rest area, the ground was too hard. We had inches and inches of snow. He kept driving south and kept driving south till he found a spot that was soft enough to where he could dig. And Holcomb isn't just talking to Karen Joe's family. He's talking to Judy Phillips and Detective Chester Price, too. Were you surprised that he even said, yeah, come up, I'll talk to you? Oh, uh, not really, because at that point he needed, he needed to, um, he was trying to, to uh, you know, get, get favors in terms of where he was going to be placed and where he wanted to be um, in, in whatever facility he was in. Uh, he, he confessed and said that he had um, killed her in the basement of, of her home. Uh, he said that he strangled her. And the kids didn't yeah. hear anything upstairs? No, uh, no, they did not. He, he had actually um, said that he had uh, taken the washing machine and, and, and unplugged it somehow, and so there was a, a leak in the washing machine, and I think he lured her downstairs with that, uh, with that premise that the washing machine is, 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 is broken. Okay. And so he killed her in the basement. So he strangles her in the basement. This is at night, in the wintertime, right? then how does she end up leaving this house and ending up wherever it was she ended up? He put her in the trunk of the car, which again we had found out that was, was completely cleaned out, and he traveled south and we were able to you know, follow, his, follow his phone calls and find out the path that he took down um, on 65. He, he did tell detectives ultimately that she was uh, somewhere in, or, um, right off 65 um, in Scottsville, Kentucky, which was a place that she had actually lived in for a time, and I think he had been down there at, at some point. Remember, it's bitter cold that last week in December of 2000. The ground immediately south of Indianapolis is too hard and frozen to dig. So Steve Holcomb starts driving southbound on I-65 in the middle of the night with a body in the trunk of his Ford LTD. Police have already established he's not a guy who travels out of the state that much. So he goes to about the only place he knows outside of Indiana where the ground is soft and a body could be buried. And that's when Steve Hawkins confessed to Detective Price that he had murdered Karen and had taken her to Scottsville, Kentucky and buried her. Did Scottsville, Kentucky ring a bell with you? Yes, it does. Why? Well, my brother lived there. Karen lived there for about six months. That's Jack Lee, Karen Joe's uncle. 
I did write Steve a letter, uh, trying to get him to give me details from the time that he left the house. He told me they left the house around 4.30, 5, 4.35 o'clock that morning. He had stopped in Seymour, and he realized that the ground was too hard because the temperature was so cold that he didn't think he could dig a hole there. So he got back on the interstate and started south. I think he said in the letter, he said he got down there about one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, he checked in the hotel there. He went down to the bar, or went down to the bar, he called it. Got a sandwich and ate, you know. Um, and then uh, went up and dug the, dug the grave. He dug the hole, and then um, then he said he took her back up there and buried her, which was a, a shallow grave. He said that he couldn't dig that deep of a hole, but enough to just barely get her covered up. So we went over to Woodview Lane and looking around, it was a secluded area. And uh, he had described to Detective Price, the area, you know, before they took him down. And he had given quite a bit of information before they would take him out of jail, out of prison, take him 250 miles to look for a body, you know. Steve Holcomb has led police to a place in the woods where he says he buried Karen Joe. Her family coordinated with the local Kentucky sheriff on where to dig. We had cadaver dogs. We had sonar all over the area. Several places that could, could have been dug, that there was a possibility her remains could have been there. We had one gentleman that had a backhoe operation that volunteered to come out and do digging for us. You know, um, we dug probably 100,000 cubic feet of dirt out of this area that they had Steve had showed him where he thought he'd went in. So after doing all this, we found nothing. Over the months, there were more searches, more searchers, even local work release prisoners bigger pieces of machinery, more dirt moved, and the results never turned up anything. There was no sign of Karen Joe. Her other uncle, Steve Lee, lived in Scottsville, Kentucky at the time. He's still convinced Holcomb was telling the truth about where he buried his niece. He'd be shy the, the motel that he stayed in, and there was a little uh, car wash next to it. And he described how he went to this place. And for somebody to tell somebody how to do that, they couldn't do it. So he had to been there to do that, to, to know exactly where it went. How does he end up picking out a spot in the woods not far from where Karen Joe's family lives down there, where Karen Joe had been there what? before? Karen Joe loved it down there, you know. When she moved down there with me for a little bit, she, I mean, she said she loved it down there. So 
that what I'm understanding Steve said, as he was tra traveling down the highway, he seen a sign that says Gospel Kentucky. And he said it pops in my mind that Karen loved it down here, so I'll just bury her down here. There you have it. Karen Joe Smith tells Steve Holcomb at Christmas time he's got to get out, but gives him until the first of the month to find a new place. Detectives now believe Holcomb disconnected the washing machine in the basement, where he told Karen Joe there was a leak and she needed to come see. Holcomb then strangled Karen Joe in that basement, far away from where the kids could hear her struggle. Then he dragged her body through the snow to his car, started driving south and out of the cold weather in the middle of the night to where he could find some softer ground to dig a grave. And then he spotted a sign on the highway that read Scottsville, Kentucky, and he thought, hey, Karen Joe used to live here. Maybe I'll take her home. It would seem that all the way through this, from him being with her from the very start, he was very controlling over her. And it seems like the very last thing he's got control over is the uh, final resting spot yeah. of her body. And he just played that all the way to the end. He played, and he, you know, he just, um, yeah, he, he thought he had committed a perfect crime. He really thought he could actually get away with it. And um, and he would have had this family not done what we did and pursuing every avenue we could go down. If she was on the other foot, if it wasn't Karen Joe who was lost, but somebody else in the family, could you see Karen Joe being at the front of like the type yes. of investigation this family did? Absolutely. This family, this family is made of love and care and, and, and uh, we all look out for each other. I mean, we, we're always there, whatever the need is, we're there. And Karen would have been right here with us. Yeah. Karen's with us today. We just don't see her. She's like the wind. You can feel her. You can't see it. You can see the after effects of the wind, and we do that with her kids, her very kids. The damage Steve Holcomb did to Karen Joe's family, to his own family, didn't end with the murder of his ex-wife and the mother of his daughter. Stephanie, her family says she hated being called Stevie, because it reminded her of her dad, grew up without a mom she lost when she was just eight years old. Nine years later, we found Stephanie, the youngest, her daughter, and Halcom's biological child. She was found dead at 17 years old. Stephanie's grandmother, Patty Carter Bishop. What happened? More than likely, we really don't know, but more than likely alcohol poisoning. 
because kids have a tendency to turn to other things. Now, Stephanie had written him a letter and drew pictures of crying angels and saying, please tell me where my daddy or my mommy is. Please tell me where my mommy is. But she has no, not real recollection of her mother, no. Did she ever, after the conviction, because she would have been gradually getting a little bit older besides writing the letters, have a chance to confront her father face-to-face, let's say on visitation day or anything? Actually, two weeks before she died, she and I had about a two-hour conversation. She was wanting to step up and do something more. She wanted to go to some of the events that I had planned for awareness events for missing. And at that time, she said, I think I'm ready to go see him in prison to ask him where my mommy is. That's what she told me. And unfortunately, she ran out of time. Yes, she knows now. Thinking back to Holcomb's trial and sentencing, Judy Phillips says his reaction to seeing Stephanie on the stand removed all her doubt. My recollection, Steve showed the most emotion um, when his daughter Stevie was on the stand during the sentencing. He actually showed some emotion and remorse. At that point in my mind, I, uh, that convinced me that there's... It, there never was a doubt that, that he murdered her. But at, at that point, when he showed that emotion, when Stevie was on the stand, uh, I knew that, you know, we had our guys, so to speak. Philip still isn't convinced Karen Joe is buried in the woods in Kentucky. She said as part of trial discovery, Holcomb was able to read 200 pages of her investigative notes and could have concocted his story from that to send Karen Joe's family on one last goose chase, to torment them just a little bit more. Phillips said her only regret is not bringing Karen Joe home to her family. It took everybody in missing persons that at some point helped out on that case. And I think this particular case was, was really um, unprecedented for, for that, for having a complete lack of a crime scene and, you know, along with the no body. Ellen Corcello was the deputy prosecutor who plotted out the case and won the conviction for Karen Joe's family. I think this is the one case in my career where uh, they took a leap of faith and believed in me in, in pursuing it. You had a lot of things that happened in the beginning that made uh, it possible to put together this case. Sometimes missing persons cases, because there's a delay, um, people don't think to record the ordinary. And that's kind of what you need to do in a missing persons case, is to record the ordinary, to make sure that you really talk to and debrief everybody who talked to that person, and, uh, and record their memories while they're fresh of what were the last words, what were the last statements, are there phone records, get everything that could show what the pattern of life was, but because it uh, was for that person and how that's been shattered. And uh, I think because we're trained in the criminal law enforcement business to be looking for things, right? A body, DNA, fingerprint. We're looking for the things that are out of the ordinary that I think it does well to remember that sometimes we have to record what was ordinary and uh, particularly in missing persons cases.
Over the years, Steve Holcomb tried a few times to appeal his conviction. He always lost. For a guy who loves to talk, he's never responded to my letters seeking an interview. When Steve Holcomb decided to kill his ex-wife, he made an enemy of her father, Ed Bishop, a man who spearheaded the family's investigation and who literally fought and shed blood in the streets in the search for his daughter. We talked to Ed a lot over the years on Fox 59 News. Uh, we have a will, and, and we're going to find Karen. Some way, somehow, and uh, we're going to continue doing what we're doing, and, and we're going to bring her home. You know, we just don't know. We just don't have a date, but we are going to bring her home. There's going to be two things that's going to happen. We're going to bring Steve Halcom to justice. We're going to find her daughter, Karen. You're guilty. You've been proven guilty. Now come forward and tell us where she's at. Ed Bishop died a year ago at the age of 64. They say it was his heart. Brandon Smith still lives with the memory of his mom and of that last night when he picked up a baseball bat to protect Karen Joe from Steve Holcomb. Right when this happens, or even in the years afterwards, do you think to yourself, I should have done something? I said, beat him with that bat. That night. You still beating yourself up over that? It gets better, I think. I try, but yeah, can't lie. You realize you were 12 years old, right? You did what you could do. All right, is there anything else you want folks to know or understand about this story? Anything we haven't talked about? It never gets easier. She taught me the right way. Well, that counts for something, right? She'd be proud of you now. I sure hope. I know I let her down, though, but I sure hope. So that's what happened to Karen Jo Smith. You now know as much as her family and the police know about her death and disappearance. And of course, Steve Holcomb knows the truth. Her family says Karen Joe put up with a lot and spent a good portion of her life scared, but she tried to protect her kids while holding her friends close and her enemy closer. If not for the determination of her family, the insight and instincts of investigators, and the public's interest and support, Steve Holcomb might still be a free man today. This wraps up season two of Indie Justice, the murder of Karen Jo Smith. There are lessons to be learned from her family's own investigation and how that work helped detectives. We'll be back soon with that story. And of course, if Steve Holcomb ever answers our request for an interview, tell you that too. In the meantime, 
We hope you'll stay subscribed and tell your friends. For everyone here at Indie Justice, thanks for listening. I'm Russ McQuaid. Indie Justice is reported by Russ McQuaid and produced by Greg Margerson, Maureen Caruso, and Mallory Wheel. Maverick Atterbury is our editor. If you have information on this story to report, you can submit a tip to Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS. If you have feedback or story suggestions, you can email us at IndieJusticePod at gmail.com or tweet us at IndieJusticePod. Check out Fox59.com slash IndieJustice for more content.